From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders is our guest with his rally tonight in Denver. If elected, the Vermont senator would ban fracking in the face of climate change. We are fighting for the future of this planet. That is what the scientists tell us. So we are going to have to be extremely aggressive. I ask if he'd compensate mineral rights owners. Plus, why Sanders won't make an endorsement in Colorado's U.S. Senate race. Then, a candidate who's much further behind in the polls. We are on the campaign trail in New Hampshire with Colorado's Michael Bennett. And later, the Broncos open a new season with recent struggles on the field and in the front office. We'll speak with former Bronco and sportscaster Ryan Harris about the team's prospects. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If Colorado's Democrats had had their way, Bernie Sanders would be president now. In 2016, the Vermont senator won the state's Democratic caucuses handily, beating Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Of course, there were far fewer candidates in the race then. Well, today, Sanders is back in Colorado with a rally at Denver Civic Center Park, where he'll try to differentiate himself in a crowded field. I spoke with the senator by phone ahead of his visit. Senator, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. You say climate change is the single greatest challenge facing our country and the single greatest opportunity. It's with that in mind you want to ban fracking. Uh, That's how the vast majority of oil and gas in Colorado is developed. Would that mean drilling comes to a halt overnight? Well, not overnight. But look, let us understand that the issue of climate change is not only the greatest threat to the United States of America, it's the greatest threat to the world. And what the scientists are telling us is that we have fewer than 12 years in order to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel into energy efficiency and sustainable energy, or else, or else there will be irreparable damage done to our country, and in fact, the countries all over the world. We are fighting for the future of this planet. That is what the scientists tell us. So we are going to have to be extremely aggressive in combating climate change. And that is why I have introduced the most comprehensive climate change legislation or proposal, I should say, that has ever been introduced. This is a plan that would transition away from a fossil fuel-based economy to 100% renewable energy by 2030. Uh, you say this will pay for itself in 15 years. But back to that no, first... by 2050, we'll have it done. We will be carbon neutral in electricity and transportation by 2030. But becoming carbon neutral will not take place until 2050. Uh, to this idea, though, that you say drilling won't stop overnight, would you compensate the owners of those mineral rights, of that oil and gas left in the ground, who count on its value? Well, I think we ought to worry more about the workers than the owners. And I think one of the things that we have to be careful about is understanding that there is a great deal of evidence that many of the owners of the fossil fuel industry, ExxonMobil and others, have known for years that the product that they are producing, which is carbon emissions, is destroying the planet. And despite that knowledge, they continue to do that. So to my mind, in terms of my relationship with the fossil fuel industry, I think we have to hold them accountable in the same way we have to hold the opioid 
producers in the drug companies accountable for selling a product that they know was addictive, in the same way we hold the tobacco industry accountable for selling a product that they knew caused cancer and other diseases. So what our legislation does, in fact, is say to these CEOs in the fossil fuel industry, you know what, we are going to hold you accountable for producing a product which is destroying this planet. We are going to do away with all of the subsidies, $400 billion a year in tax breaks and subsidies that you are currently receiving. We have a national crisis on our hands. We have a global crisis on our hands. And now is the time to stand up for the fossil fuel industry, transform this energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency, not only in America, but all over the world. Of course, not all mineral rights owners are large corporations. Correct. But give me an example of how a middle-class attorney or office assistant working in connection with the oil and gas industry, mm-hmm. how they mm-hmm. transition to something else in a green Very economy. Good. good question. Good question. If you read our bill, you'll find out that we spend billions of dollars for what we call a just transition. Oil workers and coal miners are not my enemy. I have perhaps the strongest pro-worker record in the United States Congress. What my enemy is are not the working people in the fossil fuel industry. My enemy is climate change. So we have a five-year transition period, which guarantees those people who may have lost their jobs, decent wages, decent health care benefits, and the educational opportunity to move on to other jobs. So we do everything that we can to make sure that this is a just transition. But at the end of the day, climate change is an existential threat to the United States of America and every other country on Earth. We have got to bring this planet together to save uh, this Earth for our kids and our grandchildren. Let's move on to your plan in Colorado, your ground game here. Do you see Colorado as a swing state, a blue state? You know, as you may know, we did very well in Colorado last time, but we take nothing for granted. We have in Colorado a very, very strong volunteer base. And one of the advantages I believe we have as we head into the fall in this campaign is that I think we have the strongest grassroots support of any candidate out there, and that includes Colorado. So uh, we're going to be knocking on a lot of doors. We're going to be making a lot of phone calls. And I think the platform that we have, which basically says to the people of Colorado and the people of America that we are sick and tired of the greed and corruption of the corporate elite, whether it is Wall Street, whether it is the uh, drug companies who are charging us by far the highest prices in the world for the medicine that we need, uh, whether it's the insurance companies, and we're going to move to Medicare for all, or whether it's the fossil fuel industry. We need a government and an economy that works for all of us, not just the 1%. And I believe that that is a message that will resonate in Colorado and all over this country. Senator Sanders, do you plan to make an endorsement in Colorado's U.S. Senate race? No, I think that's a, uh, what I will do is do everything that I can to make sure that the Democratic candidate defeats Senator Gardner in the fall. But I think it is best for the people of Colorado to make their choice in the Democratic primary. You will not make an endorsement uh, now or ever, it sounds like? That's what it sounds like to me, yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Let me say that recently, Colorado's former Democratic governor, John Hickenlooper, jumped from the presidential race, as you know, to the U.S. Senate contest here. Yes. Uh, There were already about a dozen candidates running. 
Hickenlooper pretty much took aim at you and policies like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal in a speech at the National Press Club in June. He said to defeat Donald Trump. Democrats must present a bold agenda while at the same time being mindful that socialism is the most effective attack Republicans can use against us. And you have been the subject of that attack yourself, Senator Sanders. Is socialism the label that will keep the White House in Republican hands? Well, I think as others have pointed out, Donald Trump and the Republican Party will call any and all candidates socialist. They call Barack Obama a socialist. You know, way back when, the old days, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was called a socialist. Harry Truman was called a socialist. Doesn't matter. They're going to call anybody a socialist. But let me be very clear. The agenda that we are running on, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, passing a Medicare for all single-payer program so that every American has health care as a human right, not a privilege, and we lower the cost of health care for the vast majority of the American people, is something that is very popular, making public colleges and universities tuition-free by imposing a modest tax on Wall Street speculation, very popular idea, and dealing aggressively with climate change is something that the people of Colorado, I believe, and the people of America want us to do. So Trump and his friends can say anything they want. But we have to remember that Trump is a pathological liar, that Trump is a racist, a sexist, a homophobe, a xenophobe, and a religious bigot. And the credibility of Donald Trump is not very high in most places in this country. Uh, Do you think that you can speak to the people in Colorado who may have voted for Donald Trump and who you wish to court to vote for a Democrat? I do. Not all of them, obviously, but I think we can get some of them. Because I think many of these people are struggling. They are struggling to pay for child care for their children. They're struggling to be able to send their kids to college. They're struggling to be able to afford health care. And I think we have an agenda that speaks to those needs. Many of those people voted for Trump because Trump said he would take on the elite, that he would not cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Well, Trump is a liar. He brought more billionaires into his cabinet and his administration than any president in history. And his budget calls for massive cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and to Social Security. And I will make that point. And that if you look at my record, it is a record that for decades has stood with the working people of this country, that I am prepared to take on Wall Street. We're prepared to take on the insurance companies, the drug companies. We are prepared to create an economy that works for all of us, not just wealthy campaign contributors. And yes, I think that is a message that will resonate with some of Trump's supporters. Now, what would you say to Coloradans who may have supported you in 2016, but want something different, something new? from Democrats this time around? Well, I think Coloradans and people all over this country understand that what politics is about and what the presidency of the United States is about is not something, quote-unquote, new or something, quote-unquote, old or something, quote-unquote, different. It is about the policies that a candidate stands for. It is the record that a candidate has established for many, many years. So what I would ask is not a game where we're old, gee, we're tired of the old, we want something new. What people want is a candidate who will stand with the working families of this country. So my point is there are a lot of good candidates out there. Many of them are personal friends of mine, and I don't disparage them. But I would hope that in Colorado, and I expect all over this country, people will take a hard look at the candidate, 
at what he or she has accomplished over the years, what their vision is for America. And I think if people uh, do that, we're going to do just fine. You've mentioned health care several times. I want to point out that in Colorado, a single-payer plan that would have been specific to the state lost overwhelmingly, something like an 80-20 margin. Todd Cohen asks on Twitter, how would you sell something like that nationally? Well, I knew a little bit about that campaign. It was a poorly run campaign in Colorado when I would, uh, several years ago. And what I would simply tell you is that poll after poll uh, that I have seen suggests that the overwhelming majority of the American people believe in a Medicare for all single-payer system. And the reason for that is they understand the dysfunctionality of the current system. They understand the absurdity of spending, as Americans, twice as much per capita on health care as do the people of any other country, Canada or any of the European countries. Twice as much. And yet we have 87 million Americans uninsured or underinsured. 30,000 people a year die because they don't get to a doctor when they should. We pay by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. And 500,000 Americans go bankrupt every year because of medical bills. This is an absurd system. Senator, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders is running for president. We spoke Friday uh, ahead of his rally this evening in Denver Civic Center Park. Colorado Matters is requesting interviews with all the candidates as they visit the state. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The third Democratic presidential debate takes place Thursday with only the front runners on stage. But the candidates who didn't qualify, including Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, press on somewhat defiantly. Their focus is building support voter by voter in early states. For Bennett, that meant spending this past weekend in New Hampshire. Electing a Democratic president is not enough. We have to elect a majority in the Senate, and we have to hold on to the majority in the House of Representatives. And we have to have an agenda that will allow us to do that. CPR's Caitlin Kim kept up with Bennett on the campaign trail this weekend, and she joins us from Manchester. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Ryan. I imagine that you got to hear his stump speech more than a few times over the weekend. How is Bennett pitching himself to New Hampshire voters? So not a lot of people have actually heard of Bennett, so the pitch usually starts with his bio. He's positioning himself as someone who wants to protect this experiment in democracy that is the United States, you know, someone who can get things done in Washington, because he also understands why big issues don't get done. So it's not just a Donald Trump problem. He doesn't think Washington will fix itself, so it's going to be something that the people have to fix. And that brings him to his agenda. He says that it needs to be one that people, not just Democrats, can get behind. You know, it's a little swipe that some of the policies progressive candidates are bringing to the table that will be hard to sell in red states and even some purple states. And he's bringing up issues like education that he says doesn't seem to get mentioned at all, except to talk about free college when he says, you guys, what we should really be talking about is free universal pre-K. So because if you fix education, you start fixing issues like income inequality. And of course, he has experience as superintendent of Denver Public Schools. How does that message seem to be going over with audiences? 
You know, a refrain I heard from a lot from the voters this weekend was that they like his ideas. Again, his call for universal pre-K was a hit with folks. You know, him his wanting to fix our standing in the world. But he doesn't necessarily inspire them. Um, Peter Sage is from Oregon, and he called himself a political tourist. He's traveled to both Iowa and New Hampshire to hear candidates speak, and this is what he had to say. He's an extraordinary talent. He says important things. I'm not sure he's saying them in the way that a president who excites crowds and develops a constituency does it. I will say that he did get the crowd going at an afternoon candidate event. I actually found a voter who said, and I quote, I love Michael Bennett. But even the people who agreed with what he said also said they're still looking at other candidates, Klobuchar, Sanders, Warren, um, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, I realize I'm hung up on that idea of a political tourist to someone who visits the early states to meet with these candidates. Okay, so it it sounds like Michael Bennett is in some limbo. People don't dislike him, but they don't like him enough to prefer him over everyone else in this, you know, huge field. That's exactly it, Ryan. Um, One New Hampshire voter I talked with spoke about how she wanted to make this candidate sandwich, a little bit of one candidate, a little bit of another, and still an element of a third. Michael Bennett, unfortunately, wasn't even a side pickle of the sandwich, but he's not alone. And actually, another name I didn't hear in the top five of the voters I spoke with was former vice president and current frontrunner Joe Biden. So Bennett does have one thing going for him, and Ken Scupp, who was at the candidate picnic, summed it up like this. To nominate somebody from California or New York or Massachusetts, states you're going to win anyway, seems a bit counterproductive. So it's the fact that Colorado is a purplish state and a western state. So that's that's a benefit to Scup. Um, but ultimately, what he wants is just someone who can win, and that is something I heard from heard. That's something I heard over and over again from all voters. That all they really want is someone who can beat Donald Trump. Do people believe Senator Bennett can do that? From what you heard this weekend in New Hampshire. Bennett believes he can do that. He said he wouldn't be in this race if he didn't think he could win it. But being 1% in the polls and not making the debate stage this week and most likely next month is going to, uh, going to make that just that much harder for him, especially for the people that still don't know him. Right. Not being on that stage means a lot of national exposure that is simply missed. What is his ground game like in New Hampshire? So I wasn't seeing much evidence of a ground game. At the events I went to, there were tables for some of the candidates, for Warren, for for Booker, for Cory Booker from New Jersey, people with shirts and flyers for the candidates, not so for Bennett. Again, I asked Ken Scupp and his wife Josie what they knew about Bennett, and this is what they had to say. Not much. I know more about um, Hickenlooper than I do about Michael Bennett. Uh, and But that's part of the reason that, that we're here. I'm not... 100% sold on anything. So Bennett has a steep hill to climb. You know, I asked New Hampshire delegates if, I had, if they had any advice for Bennett, and what they said was they ha- that he has to go out and meet people face-to-face. There's this joke in New Hampshire, if someone asks if, you, if you've decided on a candidate, the answer is no, I've only met them twice. <laughs> he needs to meet people and meet them over and over again if he hopes to change the needle. Yeah, that's such a contrast to how much of the rest of the country interacts with presidential candidates, which if they meet them once, it would be quite the story. Uh, Then it started the past weekend with an endorsement from Gary Hart, another Colorado senator who came from behind to nearly win the Democratic presidential nomination in 84. 
Of course, four years later, his campaign ended in scandal. Uh, how important is that heart endorsement for Bennett's campaign? I realize there's probably a generation of folks who don't necessarily know who Gary Hart is. You know, yes, they're, they're, that's part of the challenge. But overall, Bennett said it was a good weekend. And as you said, it started with that heart nomination or endorsement. It was fun to spend the whole day with Gary, with people that he had known in 84. And it's a reminder that being 1% in the polls at this stage is not the end of the game. We've got a long way to go. I think Bennett wants to use Hart's history to bolster his argument that he has a chance, no matter how much he's trailing other candidates right now. Hart was mostly an unknown when he started in New Hampshire, um, and he ended up pulling off an upset that pushed him to the top of the field and kept him in the race. Um, until he lost to Walter Walter Mondale in 1984. So Bennett's clearly hoping to remind voters and the press of this successful underdog story and other, you know, to counter the other stories that say that he's a long shot. That is CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim joining us from Manchester, New Hampshire. She spent the weekend attending Michael Bennett's campaign events to learn how voters perceive his presidential campaign. Okay, when Blue Mustang, better known as Blucifer, the sculpture with glowing red eyes at DIA, was targeted by vandals the other day, the Twitterverse was quick to invoke its wrath. At Brian Yossarian wrote, Are you trying to summon a demon army? Because this is 100% how you get demon armies. And Andrew Brandt tweeted, Tempting fate, Blucifer does not forgive and forget. It all reminded us of the video game inspired by the much maligned and so-called demon horse. Lucifer, the doom horse of Denver, is for smartphones and tablets. The game's developer, Ryan Seabury, was awestruck the first time he saw the horse. And so I thought for the game, it would be cool if the horse actually came to life and went on a rampage through Denver and just started destroying everything. We spoke back in March, and I asked him about the object of the video game. Well, so you play as Lucifer, and the object is to generate as much destruction value before your evil power runs out. And your evil power, he says, comes from the souls of innocence. Players who are familiar with the Mile High City will recognize the setting. It's based in Denver in the actual street map of Denver, which I literally hand-drew from some open-source map data. And then I've plugged in about 30 different landmarks, pieces of art, historical buildings. Just kind of a love letter, sort of a twisted love letter, I guess, to Denver. Seabury told us he wasn't making bank with a game like Blucifer. And in fact, he says he donates the proceeds to charity. His goal, to do something cool for Colorado and help you pass the time. Meanwhile, whoever decided to blemish the iconic airport statue with orange paint may have more than police to contend with. As Philip Jones tweeted, everyone should know the punishment that awaits those who anger Blucifer. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Your interactions with friends and co-workers tomorrow may hinge on what happens tonight. That's as the Denver Broncos open their 2019 season against the Oakland Raiders. Denver hopes to rebound from a year that left fans grouchy and grumbling from week to week. Former Bronco, now Altitude radio broadcaster Ryan Harris joins us. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Nice to be on. Uh, Tonight's game is at the Oakland Coliseum. 
Uh, do you think it's more likely Broncos fans will be happy or sad when they wake up tomorrow? Uh, I think they'll be happy. You know, it's tough when you're on an NFL team to have as many distractions as the Oakland Raiders have had, losing Antonio Brown. Uh, and more to do also with what the Broncos have done. They've added a veteran Super Bowl champion quarterback. That bodes well for your offense. They're going to start Philip Lindsay, a running back who got to the Pro Bowl last year, even though he didn't start until week eight of last season. They added Noah Fant, who against San Francisco, when I watched the practices, started to build on the confidence that each of us needs when we start a new job. So you look at that just from an offensive standpoint, as well as the distractions, and we didn't even get to a defense, which will be a top three defense in the NFL. Uh, the new quarterback, Joe Flacco, uh, we'll talk about him in just a moment, but Denver has been one of the NFL's premier franchises, winning the Super Bowl as recently as 2016. And yet the team hasn't made the playoffs since. Uh, what has happened to the team since raising the Lombardi Trophy a few years ago? Yeah, well, when we won the Super Bowl, we had an epic team. Just great stars who were also uh, willing to give to others, give time and space and, and even production and stats. And once we won the Super Bowl, a lot of us, a lot of us parted ways. Uh, so the Broncos lost about nine or ten players. Uh, and they got draft picks for those. But when you lose ten players and three of us that were on the offensive line, we had a combined over 200 starts. So it was a lot of experience you're losing. And that's just at the offensive line. They lost a defensive tackle, Malik Jackson, who signed a $90 million deal, and Danny Trevathan, who went on as well. So a lot of the core guys, and not to mention the retirement of Peyton Manning, all left. And similar to wherever you work and you listening, you know, it's hard if you lose 30% of your team who had the most experience, uh, especially in the NFL, of winning. Shocking to many, not a lot of guys in the NFL have experience winning. They may have experienced winning at one point, but the experience of winning repeatedly, of what to do in those moments, what to do when things go wrong in a game, on a play, and how to handle failure. I mean, these are things that experienced winners understand in the NFL that can be catastrophic for other players who are younger and who may not understand these things. So the, the Broncos lost a lot of experience, and the vast majority of it especially was on the offensive side. That's just fascinating. I mean, it's really that there is a double-edged sword quality to winning the Super Bowl. You think that's only good news, but um, the aftermath of that can actually be rough for a team. Of course, there's also been drama on the ownership front, lawsuits within the family of Pat Bolin, the patriarch who guided the franchise for more than 30 years. He died in June. Uh, I guess now there's a path that's been cleared for one of Bolin's daughters, Brittany, to take control. But how much has that kind of controversy affected the team's direction, do you think? Greatly. And, and that's a great point by you to notice that. It'd be as if you took the CEO of DaVita, a company here in Denver, and told the operations to still produce. You know, it's really tough because, especially in sports, what an owner will do is an owner will come in and say, we're not going to let Ryan go. We're not going to let Steve go. We're not going to let Nancy go. We're going to do anything we want. I want Nancy on this team. Now, as GM, whose job it is to put all the contracts together and the best talent, they may not agree with that, but guess who you're not going to go against in the NFL is your owner. And the Broncos haven't had that. They've had a collection of people, and Joe Ellis has done a great job, a guy I know very well and very capable. Um, but there's something about being an owner of a franchise where you have final say no matter what the statistics or the other members of your team may, may think. And, and that can leave a lot of guys, especially in the locker room, wanting more. There's a key piece of a wheel, a key cog that's missing. And the key cog that helped us win the Super Bowl, the expectation 
by, by Mr. Boland was to put together a team that would win the Super Bowl, not go, but win. And, and the team did that. And since not having Mr. Boland in that capacity, it's been difficult for the Broncos and the Broncos players. Uh, so that's definitely something that will have to be ironed out. Of course, I'm partial. Brittany Boland went to Notre Dame like myself, <laughs> so I'm rooting for her to do it. But, uh, but even then, she's going to walk into a room with John Elway, uh, three-time Super Bowl champion, twice as a player, and say, hey, I want to keep Ryan. And, and it's going to be tough to tell John Elway or a guy even like Joe Ellis, who had so much knowledge and experience in the NFL, what you want. But mm-hmm. uh, if anyone can, it's a Notre Dame graduate. Okay. <laughs> a little plug there for alma mater. Okay, back to the field. Uh, the Broncos have a new coach this season, Vic Fangio, longtime NFL assistant who's getting his first head coaching gig at, I think, 61. Uh, and there's this new quarterback, Joe Flacco, who actually hasn't been a beloved figure in Broncos history, uh, largely because of this play when he was quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens. Flacco stepping up and throwing deep down the far sideline. Caught into the end zone. Touchdown, Jacoby Jones. How does that happen in the Denver secondary? Uh, Perhaps one of the most infamous plays in team history, a 70-yard touchdown pass from Flacco to Jacoby Jones, which knocked Denver out of the 2012 playoffs. Uh, But that was seven years ago, a lifetime for many quarterbacks. Uh, how much does Flacco yeah. have left, do you think? Yeah, and a lifetime for many players. The average NFL career is three years long, so not a lot of guys are still there from that game. But uh, Joe Flacco is going to be great, and, and it's going to come down to the fact he's not going to be asked to do much. You know, Tom Brady's asked to do a lot for the New England Patriots, and he can. But this defense is going to give the ball back to the offense in favorable positions on the field with a, a comfortable lead or with, with a small deficit to overcome. And one of the things that people do not understand, when you have a Super Bowl champion in your huddle, as I've had when I played with Ben Roethlisberger, when I played with Peyton Manning, these guys have an ability to never see losing in a game. And that is so powerful in a huddle when you're down 10 points, when you're down seven. Because I've been in a huddle with a quarterback who thinks the game is over in the third quarter. That's tough to play. Hmm. All right, guys, here we go, Ryans. We're going to do a zero out, scat, 22 bird on three. Ready, break, versus all right, here we go. We've got to get this one in. We're going to go zero out, scat, 22 bird on three. It's a total different mentality, and it's infectious to everyone else in the huddle. So when, inevitably, the Broncos are down in a game, they will never be out because they have a guy who knows how to make that throw that you're talking about that was in the fourth quarter that made the difference in going to the next playoff game and let alone winning the Super Bowl. And guys like that do not think about or envision losing. They only think about what needs to happen to win, and it affects everybody on the field. Gosh, I, it makes me want to bring that energy to our next editorial meeting. You know, you just realize yeah, yeah. how much influence that kind of energy can have. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Ryan Harris joins me, former offensive lineman for the Denver Broncos, part of that 2016 Super Bowl winning team, now a sportscaster uh, with uh, altitude. Okay, I want to ask you about another quarterback, or I guess I should say former quarterback, Andrew Luck recently retired rather unexpectedly from the Indianapolis Colts. He was one of the best in the game. And uh, this is from the night he made the announcement. For the last four years or so, I've been in this cycle of injury, pain, rehab, injury, injury, pain, rehab. Uh, And it's been unceasing and relenting. 
unrelenting, both in season, both in and off season. Uh, and I felt stuck in it. And the only way I see out uh, is, is to to no longer play football. Uh, it's it's taken my joy of this game away. Uh, and uh, this. Sorry. Since then, there's been a lot of talk about what a joyless endeavor playing in the NFL can be, especially when you're battling injuries. Uh, you played, as I said, offensive line, where you were subject to violent collisions virtually every play. I think you had nine surgeries uh, in a 10-year career. You just told us yeah. that the average NFL career is three years, so you you beat that. But um, can you relate to Andrew Luck? A hundred percent. And, you know, I'll give you three points. One, uh, the injury rate. Two, a story about Andrew Luck. And three, as you mentioned, my personal experience. You know, one, the injury rate in the NFL is 100 percent. If you play, you will have surgery. This is this is a fact. And, And about Andrew Luck, the year we won the Super Bowl, we actually played the Indianapolis Colts in Indianapolis. And a gutsy game by Andrew Luck, and he was hit repeatedly, and they ended up pulling out and winning at the end of the game. And when we returned back to Denver, we found out he had finished the game with a lacerated kidney and was wow. continuing to uh, expel blood for the next week and a half of his life. And when you talk about the NFL and how often this happens, I had nine surgeries. I had five on my left leg to save my left leg below my left knee. I've had three back surgeries, a total toe surgery. And that cycle of pain, one of the things people do not understand is how isolated you are. And if any of you have had uh, surgery, you, you know, and you may like it at first, right? Oh, gosh, I don't have to go to work. I just had a surgery, right? But all of a sudden in the NFL, well, that's, now you're on your third month where you see the guys. And, and imagine right now if, if you're in the locker room and, and the New England Patriots had just played and they won a big game on Sunday night football. They all come back and they're excited. Well, you're in ice and you're immobile and you're like, yeah, great game guys. I watched it. They're like, thanks Ryan. Thanks. And then they walk on and continue telling the stories of the game that you'll never know. And that's after just one week. So you think about not only the pain, but the isolation that players face. And it was one of the reasons why a former teammate took his own life uh, that I have because he was so isolated from the team after his injuries and people and athletes were very generous not to talk about what it means when it takes the joy. I mean, you're in your 20s and you take, something takes the joy out of your life. Mm. And I remember from my injuries being unable to be the parent and dad and husband I wanted to be because of the game of football. And it's completely understandable to every NFL player who understands that cycle, being isolated, months-long recovery. I had to climb up my stairs after my toe surgery because I forgot my phone and just crawling up my stairs thinking, how the heck am I going to play football again was a thought that almost made me retire at that time. So it's oh. very emotional. You're very isolated, and especially as an athlete who's so used to being quicker, faster, stronger than everyone around you, to be the weak link, even at a family dinner, that's tough, and every player understands. Wow. Ryan, I don't think I'll forget the words, if you play, you will have surgery. That's sobering. That's Ryan Harris, former offensive lineman for the Denver Broncos, part of that 2016 Super Bowl winning team, now a sportscaster and author of Mindset for Mastery. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On her way to visit her boyfriend in the United States, Paola, a woman from Chile, is stopped at customs. And she never actually makes it out of the airport. At any point, is somebody explaining to you exactly what you've done wrong? 
Yes, I tried marijuana in a place which is not legal for immigrants. That was my mistake. On the next episode of On Something Love in the Time of Legalization, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It might be the world's most hated invention, the Denver boot. For decades, the hefty wheel clamp has frustrated drivers and forced the payment of countless overdue parking tickets. But why is it named for Denver anyway? It's what one listener asked through Colorado Wonders, and CPR's Sam Brash investigates. This question came to us from Jill Hamilton. She's a public health official who lives in Denver, and she says she's been seeing car boots everywhere lately. You know, parking is at a commodity in Denver now, and I've just noticed them more and more. Heavy yellow clamps. Like a lot of cities, Denver uses these devices to immobilize parking scofflaws until they pay their parking tickets. Hamilton was curious if this enforcement scheme really originates in Colorado. I wanted to know if the Denver boot, the wheel locking mechanism they put on cars was actually invented here. Okay, no suspense here. The answer is yes. But what's amazing is how long the boot has stayed strapped to Colorado's capital city. This is the standard hooker, and it's like a frisbee, and it goes over a wheel. This is Liz Wilson. She shows me a boot in the back room of Clancy Systems International, her company in South Denver. It's made of unpainted aluminum, a couple of arms attached to either side of the wheel, and a disc protects the lug nuts, so you can't just remove the tire. The whole thing weighs about 17 pounds. There are now many types of wheel clamps made by many different companies, but this is the original first dreamt up in the 1940s. A man by the name of Frank Murug invented the Denver boot. He was an interesting man. He was a violinist with the Denver Symphony. Murug was also a pattern maker, or somebody who designs metal castings. A friend of his worked for the Denver Police Department, which had a problem. Drivers were ignoring their citations. And the only way the city could force a payment was to tow a vehicle, which could result in a lawsuit if a car was robbed or damaged. And he said, what if we could do something to get these people to pay their parking tickets? What if we could put something on the car And Frank then made the boot. And the Denver boot was a huge success. The city was the first to deploy it in the 1950s, and it collected $18,000 in a matter of weeks. Meanwhile, Murug cashed in. He patented the boot and started selling it to cities around the world. And as the wheel clamp spread, so did its legend. It's got this connotation that they're going to get your car with the Denver boot. It's it's like, like Dracula. For cars. Wilson takes a certain amount of pride in owning the boot and that reputation. She and her husband bought Murug's company from his daughter in the 1980s. Since then, she supplied models to movie studios. And there was a Law and Order series in New York that they used the boots for. Homer Simpson has done battle with a cartoon version of the Denver boot. So long, Mr. Boot! There's even one of the devices in the Smithsonian. The city of Denver itself now uses a different model wheel clamp, but the original is still made here, 
in Colorado. So right now you're seeing molten aluminum at about 1,300 degrees poured into a sand mold. At JW Refold Metals Foundry in Englewood, Rocky Refold supervises workers casting a Denver boot. His grandparents first started this foundry in the 1930s, and it's worked with Clancy Systems ever since he was a kid. I think it's awesome. It's one of our best relationships we have with one of the longest customers we've had. It's also helped keep the foundry open when a lot of this sort of metalwork is moving overseas. But Wolfson, back at Clancy Systems, thinks law enforcement might not need the boot for much longer. Because there's so many new tools we do with police departments, with parking enforcement, that it's almost a relic. Tools that make it a lot easier to shake someone down for a payment. Today, police can quickly look up someone's name, address, phone number. They can even put a pause on someone's license and registration. But while public authorities have new ways to enforce parking rules, private lots don't have that luxury. Exactly. And so that's why a lot of this private enforcement and booting is going to grow. In other words, the history of the Denver boot isn't over. It might just be shifting roles from a way to police your street to a way to police your local strip mall and apartment complex. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. And tomorrow, Sam looks into Colorado's private booting industry and the effort to regulate it so it's not abused. Imagine an earthquake or maybe a building collapse. There's a race against the clock to find people who are trapped. Well, now there's a race to develop a better way of rescuing them using drones. A team from Colorado is facing off in this national competition and just completed the first stage. I spoke earlier this year with Professor Sean Humbert of CU Boulder's Mechanical Engineering Department about the challenges of this. Hi, Sean. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. Nice to have you on the show. So um, a friend of mine got a drone for Christmas, and I flew it around his apartment a little. It was tough not hitting the wall or his kid. I can't begin to imagine what it would take to maneuver through narrow, winding, dark passageways. I, I gather that's just one of the challenges you're working on. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the DARPA challenge, every five years, they, they sort of set one of these up. And uh, the subterranean one offers a lot of really interesting problems, like you said. So the autonomy piece, being able to perceive and map and maneuver through your environment, very difficult, especially to do it real time. And uh, th- these drones operate for about 15 minutes, typically. DARPA also wants these missions to last for one to two hours. Uh, and of course, if you're underground, you've got all the communications aspects that are difficult as well. You know, I can't typically get line of sight and 2.4 gigahertz and throw all the map data back and forth. I might be able to send a text message if I find a human or a person or a chemical leak or something like that. So all of those wrapped up together make for a very hard problem. You mentioned DARPA. This is the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And CU Boulder got a $4.5 million federal grant from DARPA. Okay, so just to, to break down, to unpack some of the challenges there, battery life has to be important if you're going to go for hours trying to rescue people. Uh, we've got some unique solutions, and our team is not just CU Boulder, it's also CU Denver, and we've got some great faculty and students down there working on the power problem. Oh. Uh, not at liberty to say our, what our exact solution is right now, but uh, we, we've got some some interesting ways to, to extend the life of the drones for 
for about one or two hours. And then anyone who's gone into a tunnel and tried to have cell service knows that's really difficult. So the, this aspect of communication when a drone is in a deep, dark place, uh, it was just a whole other challenge. Yeah, it is. So you don't have this 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi where you can throw a lot of data back and forth, like I said. So, you know, if maybe there's uh, just a bend in the, the tunnel or the corridor, you know, you can still use some, some traditional stuff. But, you know, we're looking at different frequencies and different ways to communicate data. So um, these missions will be a collaborative effort. So you'll have ground vehicles and aerial vehicles collaborating and trying to build the map together. That is, you might have a drone, but you also might have other types of vehicles that are shuttling information back and forth. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And huh. there's three stages to this. The, fir the first is sort of a, a tunnel, you know, like a man-made tunnel type of underground system. The next will be something like a, like a DC metro station, something with some 3D structure where you might have to fly up a vertical shaft or climb stairs. And that the third version is the natural cave environment where you might have mud and fog and uh, water and these sort of things. And the idea would be to perceive either a person who needs rescuing, or maybe even objects associated with a person, like, I don't know, a backpack or something. Absolutely, yeah. So the idea is that uh, in the challenges, there will be about 25 different artifacts located throughout the environment. And uh, you're graded on how accurate you locate those as well as identifying those. And then there's a temporal component as well. So they want these things to be at operational tempos. We want to be able to send things in and, you know, within 15 minutes have the complete environment mapped out and locations of all, you know, people or chemical uh, leaks or, uh, you know, cell phones or any of these types of things. I love the turn of phrase operational operational tempo. Um, this could eventually make the work of first responders much safer. In addition to rescuing people, I suppose it means that the drones go so that the first responders don't necessarily have to take those initial risks. Is that true? Exactly. And that's really what it is. And so you can imagine a building that's on fire. The environment is not such that you can have a camera and necessarily navigate through. So we have all these really interesting perception type solutions with radar, millimeter wave radar and some other things so that you can fly through smoke and you can still map the environment out in those austere types of uh, environmental conditions. What is the challenge that you think is most daunting. I think the real-time implementation and the operational tempo aspects of this. So there are a lot of solutions out there that require a lot of computation for the autonomy piece. You know, we can do mapping. We can do simultaneous localization of mapping. Uh, but it's getting it working on something that's small and real-time. And so you kind of balance sort of the nice robustness and mathematical properties of these computationally intensive algorithms with, hey, I need something real-time and I need it to work most of the time. It's okay if you lose one or two of these vehicles in a mission, but you know you need something that's going to be persistent over that one hour or two hour types of thing and, and not require shifting batteries every 15 minutes. Thanks for being with us, Sean. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ryan. Appreciate the time. Sean Humbert is a professor in CU Boulder's Department of Mechanical Engineering. They got a $4.5 million grant as part of the National Subterranean Challenge. The goal is to develop a rescue drone. We spoke in January. They just completed the first round of the competition. Finally today, our colleagues at Indy 1023 choose a handful of local artists to spotlight each month. And for September, that includes the Burroughs. People know I got to hit this beat. Ah! The nine-piece band from Greeley is steeped in the greats of soul and pop, 
including the Jackson 5, James Brown, and Stevie Wonder. Their energetic frontman Johnny Burroughs is no newcomer to lifting spirits. He's actually a licensed minister and music pastor. The Burroughs released a full-length album, Got to Feel, in 2018. Now, this next track is from a set of singles that came out in July. If I were a betting man, I'd say they're going to be big. One of this month's local 303 Spotlight Artists on Indie 1023. They play the Sunnyside Music Festival this weekend. I'm Brian Warner. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Matters from CPR News. And I'll be inspiring you.